0: Welcome to today's Ask the Experts call. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce today's host, David Molman with Align Technology. David, you have the floor. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar. They said it couldn't be done, how to build a thriving Invisalign practice no matter where you reside with Dr. Eddie Sauer. You'll learn two C hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign Doctor site account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor site where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Eddie Sauer. Dr. C. Edward Sauer, a native of Texas, has provided Invisalign treatment to, uh, to patients since 2003 at his private practice in Amarillo, Texas. His private practice is centered on reconstructive dentistry and Invisalign treatment. He's a graduate of West, West Texas A&M University and earned his dental degree from Baylor College of Dentistry. Dr. Sauer is an Invisalign premier provider, a fellow in the Academy of General Dentistry, and an L.D. Pankey Institute alumnus. So without further delay, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Sauer. Dr. Sauer, you now have
1: All right. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. And so we'll just kind of jump right into things. Today we're going to talk about uh, how Invisalign has really affected my practice. And some things occurred over the past couple of years that really have changed the way that things are. So we got to go through, here's the normal, let things, everybody, it's my opinion that you're hearing today and all of that. And here's the next one. I just saw this this morning in my email and I just couldn't resist it. Today is National Tale of Fairy Tale Day. So today you're gonna get my fairy tale. So if you want, you can just imagine that I'm dressed up as, A little fairy sitting here on my chair with my tiara and my wand um, with a really deep voice so off we go so here's my fairy tale story right there that's just a little bit about me and about the things that I have uh, been involved in since uh, practicing and they said it couldn't be done and when we look at this first picture it's pretty much an obvious picture of uh, Orville and Wendell Wright and You know, they went through a lot of ups and downs, and they kept themselves focused on what they really believed could happen. And, you know, nobody believed that man was meant to fly, and over a period of time, uh, Orville and Wendell actually ended up proving them wrong. This next guy is Ted. So I'm going to tell you a little story about Ted as we move into the further part of the discussion of this morning. So Ted, he was actually born in the U.S., 1904 and he was the grandson of some German immigrants and the reason I'm saying that part about it being German immigrants is because um, He was born right about the time of World War one and Or right before World War one and uh, Germans weren't highly thought, uh, thought of here in the US at that point in time So when he was 14 years old, he was one of Springfield, Massachusetts top war bond sellers and so whenever they got towards the end uh, in 1918, um, they were giving out awards. And so there was an audience of several thousand people, and Ted was the last of 10 Boy Scouts that was gonna receive a personal reward for his efforts. And the person presenting the award was Theodore Roosevelt, the former president. The Problem was, the president was only given nine medals, and whenever he reached Ted, Roosevelt be- uh, gruffly bellowed what's this little boy doing here? Problem with that was what was an honor ended up turning quickly into humiliation. And his scoutmaster ran up on the stage, grabbed him, took him off the stage. You know, that scarred uh, Ted so badly that, you know what, he never would make public appearances for the rest of his life. As his life went on, he went to Dartmouth College. And in his senior year, in 1925, him and a couple of his friends were out partying and they had a pint of bootleg gin, And he was caught by the local police chief. Uh, the dean of Dartmouth then kicked him out of uh, the, the department that he was in and he was the editor the chief of the Dartmouth humor magazine. And so things kind of spun down even further for Ted. And as time went on, you know, he wrote a book And after he wrote that book, he was in New York City, and he was doing his best to get this book published. Um, And he went to 27 different publishers. Every single one of them had rejected his manuscript. So Ted was dejectedly walking down a sidewalk in New York, and he was planning to burn his uh, manuscript when he got back to his apartment. But he ran into a friend of his from Dartmouth named Mike McClinick. And that very morning Mike had started a job as an editor at Vanguard Press in their children's section. Just a happen chance meeting. He runs into them. Next thing you know, within about three hours, the men had signed a contract and in nineteen thirty seven Vanguard published And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street, which actually that launched the career of Dr. Seuss. So you just have to kind of keep on plugging and kind of keep on seeing and keep on going ahead. And then you can find out, you know, you can, you can go beyond what other people thought. So what you're seeing here right now, this is a picture of the landscape outside of Amarillo, Texas. That's where I'm from. Nothing really to be said of It's, for those of us who live here, we think it's pretty beautiful, but it's pretty flat. There's not a lot of mountains. There's not a lot of trees. And actually, if you look at the map, we're up in the center of the Panhandle, and we're actually five hours, or 350 miles away from Dallas, Texas, down there to the, uh, to the southeast. Uh, if we go directly across, probably the closest city that is of any kind of consequence is going to be Oklahoma City to the east, and they're, they're four hours away, or Albuquerque to the west, they're four hours away. So there's really not a whole lot of extra things to, to draw you to uh, Amarillo. And so that's kind of the situation of where, um, where I reside and where I practice. So today, what we're gonna discuss is what has occurred in my practice that has helped us change um, from putting Invisalign where it began in my practice to where Invisalign is today. So today's agenda is we wanna come up with three indicators of potential malocclusion. We're gonna talk about three keys of effective patient communication. And finally, we're gonna talk about four simple analogies that crystallize the patient's understanding of what we're doing. So here's my past experience. I wanna tell you a little bit about my past experience to kind of set up for what ends up happening. Um, I became an Invisalign provider in 2003. And whenever I would see these things right here, when I'd see a CEP or a CEP tracing, you know, that just kind of put a glaze over my eyes, and actually almost a little taste to throw up in the back of my mouth. If you really want to know the truth about it, um, this was not my this was not my cup of tea. This was not the thing that um, that I wanted to be doing um, or talking about growth or that kind of thing. But I took the Invisalign uh, course in 2003. And the intention of the Invisalign at that point in time for me was really uh, we were going to get anterior teeth straight, and um, maybe we would use it to get our cases in order before we do restorative things for them. So really, Invisalign, when people came into my office, um, they weren't we didn't pro, uh, we didn't promote the Invisalign. Actually, most of my patients would have to come in and ask me for Invisalign. So from about 2003 until 2014, pretty much we would just roll along and we were doing about 10 cases a year. So some years I would make preferred provider, some years I wouldn't make preferred provider. I wouldn't even do 10 cases in a year. Uh, Because really, pretty much, this is the way that it kind of worked out. Here was Jeremy. This would be a typical case of what we would see in my practice. So Jeremy comes in, he's 34 years old, Jeremy's got these stains on his front teeth, and he comes in, he goes, hey doc, I want the stains removed and I want veneers. Well, whenever you take a look at this case, the first thing that you see is, wow, if I'm going to put veneers on him and I look at his two central incisors, I probably, they're not going to get veneers, are they? They're probably going to be full coverage restorations of some sort, and I'm going to have to be really pretty careful and hopefully I'm not going to, they're not going to end up requiring uh, a root canal and a post to go along with that. Um, and so even whenever we even consider that, <clears throat> now then you've got to begin to look at the fact of, wow, what is going on here? Um, are, the, are the tooth size shapes, are they going to be adequate or not? So we talked to Jeremy about the possibility of what if we did consider Invisalign in his case. So we talked about Invisalign, about straightening the teeth before we put the veneers on, and then we would bleach them, and then we'd go back and put the veneers on. So here's the finish for Jeremy's case. Invisalign did a great result. It gave us an incredible result. Um, And I have to tell you, at that point in time, all I was looking at was his front six teeth. I wasn't considering anything else that was going on. This was back in 2005, actually. And the interesting thing was, whenever we got through bleaching his teeth, guess what Jeremy told me he didn't want anymore? You're right. Jeremy didn't have any desire to do the veneers. He was happy with the way things were, and so guess what? Um, I saw Jeremy about a month ago, and we still had never considered putting veneers on him, and he is completely happy, and everything is staying very stable. And so that was a typical case for what we would do with Jeremy. Here's another typical case. This was Barbara. Barbara is a teacher here in Amarillo. She was about to retire at this point in time, and she came in and she goes, Doc, I want this wear taken care of. Uh, I'm about to retire, and I'm not gonna wanna spend a lot of money once I retire on my teeth, so I wanna try and get everything done before. Well, whenever you take a look at that, look at the wear on those lower anterior teeth and the upper anterior teeth. When you look at that, uh, based upon all of my um, postgraduate training that I did at Baylor, the stuff that I did through the Pankey Institute, and the stuff that I did uh, follow through with uh, the Pete Dawson, with the Dawson Academy, was this was really going to turn into the a full mouth reconstructive case, because we've got to open her bite up enough that will allow us enough room for us to restore the lower six and the upper six anterior teeth. So we decided, what if we do Invisalign And we used Invisalign to intrude the teeth to the best of our ability, Uh, and I wasn't even for sure exactly how well Invisalign would intrude those teeth for us. Um, So Barbara was all in because that meant that we had the possibility that we were only going to have to put crowns on 12 teeth as opposed to putting crowns on 28 teeth. And so here's Barbara's end result and it turned out really, really well. I don't have the pre-op photos with me um, at this point in time, uh, but you can see that the result turned out very well. You can tell that the lower or were were intruded adequately enough that allowed us to be able to do the restorations and not have to do a full mouth reconstructive case. So that's pretty much kind of how my practice went along. Then along comes a new tr- uh, territory manager. Uh, the fact that I live in Amarillo, Texas and there's, the population here is about 200,000, uh, that means that we really don't have our territory manager that's very close by. Uh, as a matter of fact, my new territory manager, Brad, he is actually coming from Dallas, so he's coming from 350 miles away. And so he was, at that point in time, new, and I hadn't hardly seen a territory manager up in my area for a long period of time. So he comes beat-bopping in my office, wants to take me to lunch, and I agree to go to lunch. And through our lunch conversation, the first thing that he asked me is, have you ever had an Invisalign day? Would you ever consider doing an Invisalign day? Honestly, based upon my past experience with Invisalign, I'm pretty skeptical. Why would I want to do that? Because as far as I was concerned, uh, Invisalign was really only for an aesthetic uh, situation. And, um, you know, that wasn't the main focus of my practice. My practice was I wanted to make sure that we had complete health, and I just didn't want to put, you know, lipstick on a pig, so to speak. Uh, And so um, I said I didn't know what I kind of thought about that, and he goes, well, kind of give it a consideration. Well, at that point in time, we also had a practice management consultant that had been in our office off and on for the past 20 years, And she was coming back in the next month, and I did remember seeing on her website that she had actually had a previous relationship with Invisalign and actually had taught some courses for Invisalign. So I contacted her and said, what should we do? Uh, Should I consider doing an Invisalign day? What's it going to do? I had a new young uh, partner with me. He He had bought into practice about two years previous. And so um, she said, you've got to do this. You have to do this. This will be perfect. Uh, You let me come in. The whole key to this is I've got to have your entire team there. I've got to have your front office has got to be a part of it. Your uh, hygiene department's got to be a part of it and your assistants have got to be a part of it. And I said, well, okay, if you really believe that that's going to be the case, then um, I'm all in. So I walked back into the office after having a conversation with her and i talked to my partner nathaniel i'll say nathaniel i'll tell you what here's what we're going to do i just don't see how invisalign fits in my part of the practice so i'll tell you what i'm gonna we're going to go through this and we'll consider the invisalign day and i'm going to give you all the invisalign in the practice and i'm going to let you become the person who does the invisalign provider for the practice because i really just don't know how that fits in and he said okay He was willing to kind of do anything that's going to help build up his side of the practice. So that's what our decision was. So the day comes. She shows up. I walk into the office. uh, I pick up my iPad. I've got the morning paper on it. I've got a cup of coffee. And I go sit back in the back of the room. And I basically pretty much have already checked out. I'm really not going to be that interested in what's going on. Uh, This is for my partner and this is for the rest of the team and I'm giving my blessing to let's move forward with this. Well, no sooner does she begin her presentation than she throws this up on the screen that you're seeing right now. Proper occlusion destroys food for a lifetime and does not damage the teeth and surrounding structures. She then followed that with malocclusion destroys the food and the teeth and the gum And the bone and the tmj so i guess i must have been slightly paying attention because that caught my eye and i thought now wait a minute this isn't we're not talking about an aesthetic situation anymore we're talking about the things that i deal with Um, and i look around the room and lo and behold my entire team is completely engaged in what's going on nobody is sitting there looking around they're all fully engaged with her as she's beginning to make her presentation. And I'm thinking, something must be changing here. There must be something that's going on. Actually, what ends up happening is the culture of my office and my entire t- team changed that day. Um, we began to find out exactly how important Invisalign could be for our practice. Because all of a sudden, now then, we're talking about dealing with recession. And we're talking about dealing with abfractions. And we're talking about dealing with where that is so prevalent. And these are all three of these things plus several others that are difficult situations that we deal with in our practice and we have some success with and we have some not so great success with. Um, I think I uh, read an article not too long ago that said the average life expectancy of a class five composite is about a year and a half. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty much the bane of the existence in my practice are class five composites. I hated them, um, until now. So what was the common factor? The common factor was force. And actually, it wasn't good force. It was a bad force that was happening. So what would end up happening would be, the contact point would occur, and it would cause abnormal lateral forces. And then these abnormal lateral forces, they would either cause premature wear, and so now then you would wear down or shorten the teeth, or they would cause an abfraction, and you would have chipping and abfraction that would be occurring. And then if you didn't take care of that over a long period of time, now then, poor, now then you're gonna have poor root support, recession, tooth mobility, you know, and even some cases we've seen, uh, and I've got a couple of cases where patients have lost their teeth. So the ultimate result out of all of this was this. Vertical force was good horizontal or lateral force is evil. So we developed three major indicators of force and malocclusion. And that is how we base the way that we look at all of our patients now. So what we're gonna look at is those three major indicators are arch form. And we're gonna talk about the arch form. We're gonna talk about arch width. Now both of these are predominantly going to be Uh, concerning the maxillary arch and then we're also going to talk about the curve of Wilson or buccal-lingual inclination and you're going to usually be looking at the mandibular arch to see that curve of Wilson or the buccal-lingual inclination so we're going to talk about each one of those so where we will start now is we're going to start with arch form so when we look at all of these we, the first place that we have to start when we look at each of these three indicators is we have to look at width, what looks right. So the thing that's going to be our right form or the proper or stable occlusal form is going to be the U-shaped form. Then we're going to consider the, the, three, bad, the three forms that cause a malocclusion, and that's going to be the omega shape, the v shape, and the square shape. So the U-shape or the Roman arch form is going to look pretty much like this. You just have a nice curve that puts all of the teeth in in an appropriate space. Uh, The idea behind that and why I'm using the word Roman arch is for this very reason. If we go back and we look at the Roman aqueducts, the Roman aqueducts, this picture is of the aqueducts that are are in excess of 2,500 years old. And they're still standing, and they're still strong, and they're still stable. And the whole idea behind that was, what the Romans found out was, is that whenever you made this arch form, it was very hard to get that all the way up until you put the last brick in the center. Interesting part about this is, guess what? There's no mortar, there's no cement, there's no filler that's in between there. Whenever they put those bricks in there, those bricks then become self-supporting. They spread the weight and the distribution of force evenly around the curve, and then that becomes an extremely, extremely stable situation. And that's the same way with the mouth. So now then, whenever we have the basis for what we want, want it to look like, now then we're going to look at the things that we otherwise might change the stability of the occlusion. Let's talk about the omega arch form. The reason omega is because of the Greek letter omega, which you can see in both of these arches up here on the top. What ends up happening is you see a constriction, it's usually occurring, uh, or a collapse that's usually occurring in the premolar area. They're tilting in, so the force is not going to be stable around the arch. Um, and it's actually a very unstable type of a situation. Uh, then there's the V arch. Whenever we consider the V arch, the way I the way I consider a V-arch is really a V-arch is an omega arch on steroids. Basically, the constriction hadn't just been uh, in the premolar area, now then, the constriction and the collapse is occurring all the way up through possibly even the central incisors. Um, Actually, a lot of these cases, if you'll look at this case, for instance, um, you'll see it come back up later on in one of the other things, and I'll I'll show you which slide that, that is is you see in predominantly, in my practice anyway, is there is a significant amount of anterior wear on these cases, and there's not so much posterior wear as there is an anterior wear. So let's look at it this way. Uh, whenever we consider the V or the major shape arch, let's consider it in the terms of a fly tent. So whenever we look at a fly tent, the only way this fly tent works, if any of you guys have ever been camping before, is going to be, you have to have the metal pole that that supports the tent fabric, and you have to have the guy lines or the guy wires that hold this in place. And that still is not the most stable of situations. The uh, sides of that tent, they flap up and down in the wind, um, and it actually doesn't take a whole lot of force, or rain, or snow, or things falling on it, and then you end up seeing that, that tent collapse because there's not a lot of strength and there's a lot of poor uh, poor support that goes as opposed to a dome tent now a dome tent if you'll take a look the way the poles are situated in this you've got two poles they're both in a u-shaped arch and they make the tent pretty much self-supporting as a matter of fact the only reason there's guy wires on it is they hold the tent down so that when if the wind blows it doesn't blow the tent down and it go rolling down the hill as a matter of fact even if it does go rolling down the hill unless something pierces the tent fabric, typically the tent does not collapse. It still holds its form. And that's the whole idea behind the U-shaped arch versus any of the other three arches. So now that we go to the last arch form, that's potentially gonna leave us with a malocclusion, and that's the square arch form. Personally, I believe that the square arch form is potentially the most dangerous of them all. The reason that I believe it's the most dangerous of them all is whenever you start taking a look at these patients, most of the time their cuspids are not in function. Or if they function, they barely function. And all of the, uh, really, the lateral forces is in group function or it's going off the premolars or something in the back. And in actuality, those are very, very hard to control. Um, This patient, as a matter of fact, he came in and he... He had been in my practice for probably about 10 years, and about every three years, we were having to go back in and do scaling and root planing. We could not keep his periodontal structure um, stable. Whenever we ended up taking him through uh, Invisalign and correcting the arch form and correcting everything in that, guess what ends up happening to all of his periodontal structures? His periodontal structures then tighten up, everything heals back up and those nagging 4- and 5-millimeter pockets that we didn't seem to be able to take care of, all of a sudden, now then, he has no 4- and 5-millimeter pockets anymore. Now that we have distributed the force in the appropriate way, guess what ends up happening? He's got a very, very healthy mouth that is easy for him to maintain. So then, now that we've gone from there, now then we're going to go to the arch width. That is our number two factor that we're going to look at. So when we look at the arch width, I thought the best thing I could do is give you the worst possible case I could find in my practice. So this this patient here, she is missing congenitally her lateral incisors, and you can just imagine how narrow this width is. This width actually turns out that it is about 24 millimeters. So it is significantly uh, less than what it needs to be. So whenever we look at this, we have to look and determine what is our standard? Um, What is the standard? Uh, McNamara from Michigan did a long-term study where he was measuring the distance uh, for the transverse measurement. And over a long period of time, he came up that uncrowded adults have a 35 to 39 millimeter transverse measurement. Uh, For those of you who have not heard the term transverse measurement, the transverse measurement is the shortest distance between T3 and 14 measured at the gingival crest. even on ivory models that, that we used to have in dental school, guess what? They show it to be 37.5 millimeters. So they've even got that correct on there. And you know, and I guess that's one way you could measure it on your patients is you could go get your uh, bowling gauge from out in your lab, and all of the, uh, make sure that you get all of the uh, wax off of it, and then you can go in and measure each one of your patients. Well of going about this. The other way of going about this would be, how about if you measure and tell me what the length of a cotton roll is? Well, the length of a standard cotton roll is actually 37 millimeters. So when you're in there checking on your hygiene patients, it would be very easy for you to just take that um, transverse, to take that cotton roll and to place it in between the upper first molars. And what you're gonna find out is, you'll find out pretty quickly that a majority of your patients out there, that their transverse measurement is not an adequate transverse measurement. Um, It is typically, it's gonna be much less than that. Therefore, we run the risk that we've got a pretty good chance that we have another factor in our malocclusion. So the last thing, number three, is the buccal-lingual inclination or the curve of Wilson. So I'm showing you Jeremy's case again. Jeremy's kind of become the poster child for my practice. Um, his finish is on, the, is on the left-hand side, and the start is on the right-hand side. And what we're gonna look at is especially looking at the right-hand side, uh, the bucklingal inclination, the way that the curve of Wilson works is this way. We're gonna calculate it by looking at this. Uh, and the usual way of looking at it, the definition, the usual definition is, is you can take a four-inch radius, and you can draw a curve or a circle, and it should touch the buckle and the lingual cusp tips of your first and second premolars and your first and second molars. They should sit on that line. And not only should they sit on that line, but the real reality is the drop from the facial or buccal cusp to the lingual cusp should be one millimeter no more the perfect is going to be just right at one millimeter so if we were to go back and to take a look at um, jeremy's you can tell really quickly that there's a much too steep of a curve of wilson and if there's a too steep of a curve of wilson then look at what ends up happening we have t that end up, you see right there, we have got the buccal cusps of the upper premolars and first molars are actually contacting and in contact with the lower premolars and lower first and the first and second molars. And in essence, what was supposed to be a non working cusp on those maxillary teeth now becomes a functioning cusp. And in that case, you can just imagine that you are going to have horizontal and lateral forces that can cause lots of problems. <clears throat> this comes out of Pete Dawson's uh, textbook, Evaluation and Diagnosis and Treatment of Occlusal Problems. This is at the very beginning of this, and this kind of led to some of the some of the uh, beliefs that I that I have followed behind. There are many stable, healthy dentitions that do not fit the averages. They're not Class One occlusion, and they seemingly violate all the customary guidelines uh, like Angle's Class One and Class Two. And attempts to correct these dentitions often end in failure because the existing harmony of form and function is disturbed by the treatment. And that's the one thing that we wanted to make for sure that we're not doing. The finishing statement of this is going to come up in a minute, and it becomes a very important statement. So in theory, concerning adults, we have two categories. We have adults with malocclusion, and we have adults with stable occlusion. We have adults that have a malocclusion that are angles class one, class two, and class three. And guess what? We can have a stable occlusion based upon these factors that I've just gone through. You can have a stable good occlusion and have a class one. You can have a stable class two occlusion, and you can actually have a stable class three occlusion. So now then what we had to do from there and what was developed from there is we had to develop three keys to effectively communicate what we were seeing in the patient's mouth to be able to communicate with them uh, what was actually going on and the importance of what we had waiting for them. So that first communication key, pictures. You've gotta have pictures. Everybody that I've talked to that's involved with Invisalign, pictures, pictures, pictures. And you know in the old cliche picture say a thousand words. It is so correct. The biggest problem is is hygienists have to take them. They have to take them. And you know, and that's not going to be an easy thing maybe to learn right up front. And it wasn't for my for my team at that point in time. So the deal was is I had to make it a win win situation for both of us. So for us just to be able to talk about what was occurring when we started Getting serious about this, I asked them for just to take three shots for me. I just needed three photos. I wanted them to take me a fully retracted smile, a maxillary occlusal, and a mandibular occlusal. The max the fully retracted smile, you know, that's the one that they look at all the time. You know, they get their teeth clean, they walk out of the office, they go sit in their car, and what do they do? They they smile really big, look in the mirror, and they take a look at their teeth. And this is what they see or they look at their teeth in the morning when they get up before they brush them, and this is what they see. But what they don't see is what occurs here whenever you take a maxillary occlusal photo or a mandibular occlusal photo. And this is the maxillary photo and the mandibular photo for the patient in this previous screen right here. This is the same patient. And whenever we look at the maxillary photo, now then we're looking and all of a sudden we see you know, there is, some, there is some crowding occurring, and there definitely is an omega-shaped arch. Possibly, you could even call it a square-shaped arch. When we look at the lower, you can tell that, the, um, that we have crowding that's occurring in the lower, and probably, if we look back here, you can look at the buccal-lingual inclination, and it's probably not the best. So from there, once we have the photos, the second communication key is we have to just look and evaluate why. So we're gonna look at the photos, like we just, like I just went through the past two photos, and we're gonna look at those photos, and it's gonna be based on the three indicators of force that we just talked about. We're gonna look at arch form, we're gonna look at arch width, and we're gonna look at buccal-lingual inclination. And then we're gonna evaluate, do they have that fractions, do they have occlusal or incisal wear? Is there recession? Multiple crowns, broken and cracked teeth, hot and cold sensitivity, TMD symptoms. Why are these being, why are the? Why, are the, why does the patient have these, these, these different sensitivities? An interesting thing was um, I was introduced to TED Talks and there's a guy named Simon Sinek and he has a TED Talk that you can find out on the internet, and I, it would be worth listening to. You really should listen to it. And if you haven't heard it before, he spoke at the TED Talk regional one at Puget Sound in 2009. And his um, title was Start With Why." He actually even has a book titled Start With Wine. Uh, and his premise in his book is, whenever we are talking to people, uh, and he was using it in the business world, is that most people, they have this golden circle. There is a three questions that are that are addressed: the what, the how, and the why. And what he explained was is that most people look at what's going on, they tell you how to fix it, and oh by the way, this is why it's happening. So the why becomes an afterthought. Um, in his talk, he talked about a couple of different companies that basically broke the mold by using by starting their um, they're dealing with their customers based upon why. Uh, his one that, uh, that he used the most was Apple. You know, Apple was a maker of computers, and then along comes their iPod, and there's everybody at that point in time, they just called them MP3 players, right? And so everybody had this MP3 player out there, and so Apple gets into the world of the MP3 product player. Now, why would a computer company that makes MP3 players all of a sudden go to the forefront. Well, if you go back and you look at their commercials, what they end up doing is is they start with why you need what the MP3 what the MP three player, which they call the iPod, would do for you. And they go through the why and by the way, this is answers the what and the how. Um, he had some very uh, key statements in his presentation. He says, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And he also said the goal is not to do business with people who need what you do. The goal is to do business with people who believe what you believe. And those of us who are going to be really successful believe in the why, and they lead those on their team from the why. So the whole idea here is we're gonna talk to our patients based upon the why. We're not gonna look at the what and the how. We're gonna tell them why things are going on. The interesting thing is now then I'm gonna finish the statement that Dr. Dawson made in his book. So we go back through that statement again and then we come to this point. Such mistakes can be prevented and a high degree of predictability can be developed. If the goals of treatment are based on a foundation of why rather than how. It's an eye-opening experience. It really is. Uh, it changed the culture of our of our office. It changed the culture of my practice. Um, and now then, I have not only um, is it the forefront of my mind, it's also in the forefront of my assistant's mind, our hygienist's mind. It's even in our front office steps. It's in their mind, too. They have an understanding for the importance of if we correct the malocclusion that's going on and give them a great stable occlusion, then guess what? These things that they've been dealing with, these abfractions, the wear, the recession, they all will go away. So now then, when we look at the pictures, it's what do you see? So the third communication key is now then, now that we've taken the photos, now that we have sat down and we've looked and evaluated the photos it's now time to start asking questions and getting the patient involved in what's going on and we're simply bringing the patient to an awareness of what's going on and showing them why it's going on we're not going to mention anything about how we're going to correct that at all yet as a matter of fact what has occurred in our practice is most of the time before we even get all the way to the end the patient is asking us how do we how do we fix this how do we make this better so we start by asking questions asking the patient have you ever noticed these flat wear spots the notching at the gum line you have sensitivity at the notching and a lot of times when you go, here notice the notching at the gum line, the first thing the patient does is they take their finger and they stick it up there and they go, yeah, every time I touch it just like this, it hurts. And I know all of you all have had patients that are doing that. So it makes it very easy for us to begin addressing what's going on. Have you ever noticed the large number of teeth with cracks or crowns in them? Have you had struggles with persistent gum disease, these persistent areas of gum disease that we've been dealing with over the years? Or how about this? These areas that are hard to keep clean because of the crowding. Or does it ever concern you? Or I'm concerned when I see all of these things. Now it's time to explain the why. So now then we go to the third communication key. So our first communication key is going to be we're going to take photos. The second communication key is we're gonna look and evaluate and start asking questions. The third communication is gonna be explaining the why. So if we're gonna explain the why, we have to have a dialogue or a script prepared for each situation. We actually went through and wrote them down so that everybody would be on the same page and have the same understanding. The worst part about this is We have to rehearse it. You have to rehearse it. And that old nasty phrase, role play, comes back in. You have to rehearse it and you have to role play it until it becomes second nature. The whole idea is just to be ready to talk about what you know. It's not so much about the rote memorization. And you know what? I walk through the office and I listen to my hygienist or my assistants talking to patients. They each have their own little way of doing it but it's based on the same set of stories. <clears throat> I even hear my, uh, my team at the front desk or my financial coordinator talking to them about these issues. <clears throat> so from that, now then in our explanation of why, we have to have four simple analogies that crystallize the patient's understanding. And this is probably some of the key points that make this so, that, make this so, um, that has made such a big difference in our, in our practice, is just developing some simple analogies that make it crystal clear to the patient. So if we take a look at this photo right here, you can tell right now that there's definitely a buccal inclination. Probably if I was to show you the occlusal photos, we would see that we, we have some sort of an omega-shaped arch at the very least. But here's our analogy that we're going to use. How the teeth that I'm hitting are much like a hammer and nail. The bad thing about this morning is is I can't actually, you can't actually see me because I would be using hand gestures and several other things on how we explain it to the patient. But the best way that I can explain it is this. So it's the way that you hit the nail with the hammer. You always want to hit the hammer straight down on the nail and the, whenever you hit that hammer straight down on the nail, the more force that you generate, it pierces the wood <clears throat> Excuse me, and sends the nail right into the, into the wood where it belongs to hold everything together. And actually, when you look at the head of the nail, there's very little damage on the head. There's no damage on the wood, and everything is, works out in perfect order. Whereas, in the case of the picture that I just showed you, if you're constantly hitting that nail from the side, you can't ever put that nail all the way in. As a matter of fact, usually what you do is what's over on the right-hand side there. You bend the nail over on the side, or you deform the head of the nail, or you mar the wood, or heaven forbid, you miss and you hit your finger. And that's just like some of these patients that you have coming in, that they're a lower anterior teeth are hitting the gum tissue back behind their upper anterior teeth. They're actually crushing it, just like hitting that hammer on your thumb when you miss the, when, when you miss the nail altogether. This came out of uh, Dr. Dawson's book. This is you know Luigi and Mario showing you exactly how that works. So Luigi is hitting the tooth from the side and causing the vibration, and the vibration goes all the way down into the root form and it's affecting it in a bad way whereas mario is hitting it straight from the top just the way that the ligament is designed for the tooth and the force is actually healthy and good okay so now then we're going to go on to our second analogy that we use the second analogy is notches at the gum line are much like a wooden fence So what ends up happening is, especially up here in the Panhandle of Texas, we have an awful lot of wind, and we don't have a lot that stops the wind. So these wooden fences, and you see most of them today or now, they've got metal poles instead of the wooden poles. But when you used to see the wooden poles in the ground, it would look like a beaver or something had been eating at the base of that that post. And so everybody would say, well, you know what, that's the grass trimmer. When I would go by and I would trim, it would, t- it would cut that post down and the post would wear down over a long period of time. Well, the reality of it is, you know what, if that grass trimmer actually did that kind of thing and we had a, <clears throat> a wooden play set back in our backyard whenever our girls were young, um, that would actually leave a straight line. It didn't leave a V. The reason that it became a V was because as the wind blew back and forth on that fence, the pole was buried two feet in the concrete, and the pole would give right at the base. And if it bent back and forth and back and forth, it would crush the wood fibers, and then your sprinkler system or the weed uh, trimmer would then take out the damaged and missing, run uh, ruined wood fibers at that point in time, and that's the end of that ended up being the reason that that happened. Uh, and so that's, that would be the analogy of So now that if you've got this force that's hitting this tooth back and forth, it's just the same way. And the lights would come on in patients' eyes and they would understand. The reality of it is, is guess what? Very little of this is because of toothbrush abrasion. A majority of what's going on, you'll find out, is because you have poor uh, forces on the teeth. They're, They're not vertical anymore, they're horizontal, or they're lateral forces that are actually destroying the tooth. So then our third analogy, Excuse me. is receding gums they resemble pulling a tent stake out of the ground so we're going to go back to the tent analogy for those of you who have uh, have been camping before you have a tent stake in the ground and what do you do when you need to pull that tent stake if it's really hard in the ground will you move it around in a circle and as you move that tent stake around in a circle what happens at the base well the dirt begins to loosen up and it begins to give and it begins to pull away until the tent state becomes loose enough that you can pull it out. The same way is if you have this horizontal, this lateral force on the tooth constantly grinding around, eventually the gums are gonna pull back and away, and eventually the tooth can become loose. And then our final one is where it's much like a door frame. Now, then, I told you earlier that I had a picture of the person who had the V-shaped arch. This is that person with the V-shaped arch. When you look at her from the front, yes, you can see some of the swear, but the wear, whenever she looks in the mirror, doesn't look nearly as bad as the wear whenever you show her the occlusal shock. As a matter of fact, she had lost 70% of the enamel on the lingual side of that tooth, of those anterior teeth but it is much like a door frame. And the fact that a door frame fits in and as it opens and closes, nothing catches. But the problem is, <clears throat> is if the door then begins to shift and the door doesn't fit in the frame anymore, now that that door rubs every time you, or it sticks every time you open and close it. And if you don't do something about it, if you don't reset the door in the door frame, you don't plane the door, then what ends up happening? Well, eventually, like on the photo on the, on the left, the door begins to splinter. Or in the center photo, you actually begin to wear away against the door frame. Or, heaven forbid, the one on the right, you actually begin to start wearing out the hinges. And, every, and then you can explain to the patient that the hinges actually act in the same way that your joint acts up in there. And so, therefore, if we go back in and we just plane it, that we're just wearing away one side of the door or the door frame to make it fit and we still haven't taken care of all the issue. We need to go and we need to reset the door and the door frame to make it fit properly. So now then that we've gone through our four simple analogies, the hammer and the nail, the fence post, the tent stake or the door frame, whichever one works for that particular patient, now then, The how. We're going to reposition the teeth so that they hit appropriately and now they only destroy the food and they don't destroy the surrounding structures. And what is the answer? Well, the answer is Invisalign or clear aligners. So you can also have these additional talking points. You can come up with things for areas that are hard to clean. Uh, their inability, their dexterity may not be very good. They may be an older patient. Uh, They may have a loss of salivary flow, uh, future unpredictable healthcare costs. And then the other thing that we always use for our talking points is typically somebody in our office is always in Invisalign and they can come in and they can talk to the patient and the patient soon sees how well this ends up working. So our focal group in our practice currently 42% of our practice is between the ages of 40 and 69. And you know what, those patients, they really understand the value of things gone, you know, like hair on your head, and the value of the things that they still have. You know, things like health and vitality, they actually become a precious commodity. So now then, it comes time to close our conversation. So we just started off with simply like this, and this is important, you have to close the conversation. You can't leave it open-ended. They may ask you, well, then how do, we, how, how do we fix this? And then you go through how we fix it. So once you come to that end, you have to do something to close the conversation. Does this sound like something that you'd like to pursue? Or how do you feel about this plan? Would you like to start the process? It's just something that gets it down the road so that it helps the patient to go ahead and make a decision of whether, yes, they're interested or whether, no, they're not interested. And you know what? If the patient's noncommittal, this is what we typically will do. We'll ask the patient if it would be acceptable to check back with them at their next checkup appointment. Or if it's a financial issue, we always work this phrase in. We never want to exchange a dental problem for a financial problem. Our financial coordinator has several options available to help this work for you so that it is is not trading a dental problem for a financial problem. So here's a couple of quick cases, really quick. This is Mary. Mary's in her early 50s. She's a typical 50-year-old female. She has had first bicuspid, she's been through first bicuspid extraction ortho when she was a teenager. And now then, if we take a look at this, it's really easy to see. She's got a B-shaped arch. If we look at the arch form, her arch width was terrible. It was about 23 millimeters. And if you look at her buccal-lingual inclination, guess what? That's pretty terrible, too. She has really bad buccal-lingual inclination. You can look at the facial shot or the fully retracted smile shot and see that she is completely functioning on her uh, facial cusp of, of her premolar. And actually, guess what? She even had some TMD issues that were going along with this. So, we talked about using Invisalign to correct these issues and address it from that point. So, here's our final on Mary. And look at what the result was. And I'll have to be honest with you, my biggest worry was the fact that what's going to happen? We're missing the first premolars whenever we begin to open this arch back up, what are we gonna do with that space where the premolars were? Well, guess what? Everything moved right into place. And guess what also happened? All of her uh, chronic headaches and her popping and clicking disappeared. So it worked very, very, very well. Matter of fact, it worked so well that her husband, Gary, came in. So whenever we look at Gary, You can look that he's got a pretty deep bite. Um, His buccal-lingual inclination, you can already tell by looking here, is not good at all, especially over on the left side. Whenever we look at his occlusal shot, he definitely has an omega-shaped arch. Uh, His arch width is a little narrow, and the lower buccal-lingual inclination is not good. The interesting thing was, whenever we get through with Gary's, look what happens to his deep bite. His deep bite basically goes away. And look at his arch form now. And the buccal-lingual inclination goes back to normal. The interesting thing that you'll find out is, I'm not gonna put a percentage on it, I'm just gonna tell you that a majority of your deep bite cases, they are due to, to posterior collapse. And whenever you upright them, and you get the buccal-lingual inclination, the curve of Wilson in the right position, most of your uh, deep bite actually ends up going away. So what are our T's for Monday? I'm gonna use the acronym, please. Pictures, they're worth a thousand words, P. The L is look. The E is evaluate why. The A is ask simple questions. The S is to start talking. And so now then, we're gonna develop an initial hygiene plan. So here's what we did. We determined how many hygiene appointments that we had during the week. So we've got three hygienists. The three hygienists work four days a week. They have one hour appointments. So the appointments are scheduled are for eight appointments a day. So our goal was this. Take photos on every patient and aim for just one conversation a day out of eight potential patients. That's all we want, is one conversation a day. Not every patient do you have to do that, but just one patient a day. So here's a couple of studies. So this study says that 80% uh, do not have an ideal bite relationship in the U.S. And another study uh, that you can look that was in the Journal of Adult Orthodontic and Orthodontic Surgery in 1989, they said that well-aligned mandibular incisors was only prevalent in 35% of the population, and that misaligned mandibular incisors were 65% of the population. The importance of the, the well-aligned mandibular incisors are is if you have posterior collapse that's occurring, you're not going to have uh, straight anterior teeth the anterior teeth are just being uh, malpositioned is also going to be a factor that relates back to arch form, arch width, and the buccal-lingual inclination. The interesting thing of that is 85% of that 65%, they're not severe. So when you extrapolate that out, that means that 55% of your practice, 55% of your practice is actually a candidate for Invisalign. So here's the rest of my story. <clears throat> so we do the Invisalign day, and I walk back into the office and I said, told my partner, I said, Nathaniel, I said, I am so sorry, I'm back in. I'm back in. This this really fits exactly what we want to do as a practice. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is now that we're using Invisalign to address the needs and the a force that is going on that's not good in my patients and then as a sideline we get to say what my good friend dr galler always says and by the way we're going to give you the smile you always want so the rest of our story was in july of that year which would have been uh, july of 2014 so almost two years ago we did our invisalign day Um, our territory manager he wanted to do a whole lot of marketing and we and I basically told him, no, this time we're not going to have any kind of external marketing. I'm going to tie your hands. You cannot use um, television. You cannot use radio. We're not going to do email blasts. We're not going to use text messaging. We're not going to do anything at all. All we're going to do is we're going to print the flyer, and for the six weeks previous to the Invisalign Day, we're going to hand it out to our patients as they come into the practice. And those are the, that's just the way that we're going to do it. So, here's what our results were. We did an Invisalign day on July the 16th. We had 26 patient starts. We had been averaging about 10 a year, and that was what Brad said, okay, let's make our goal to be 10 a year. What I didn't know at that point in time was he was talking to the practice management consultant, and the practice management consultant told Brad, but didn't tell me, and Brad later told me, was I think, that eddie will do 50 cases before the end of the year based upon this well the interesting thing was case starts from july to december of 2014 was 58 starts all based off the internal marketing alone all based off of the fact that the culture in our office changed and we began to look at the three markers of malocclusion we began to consider the three keys of effective communication, and then we also were using the four simple analogies that crystallized patient understanding. So I'm going to end it kind of with this. This is a statement from Henry Ford. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. It's an absolutely great statement. So I'm going to leave you with one final thought. This is Jeremy, my poster child for Invisalign. Jeremy is 34. This is another friend of mine in the practice, Kel. Kel is 67. There's 33 years of difference between them. What is the possibility that Jeremy could have ended up just like Kel 33 years later? So with that, thank you for your attention today and I uh, hope you guys have a great weekend.
0: Thank you, Dr. Sauer, great presentation. I wanna cover one quick thing that's very important in order to receive your CE certificate for this program. Currently on the screen right now, there's a link to take a quick survey. Once you complete your survey, you'll have immediate access to your C certificate, so please go there after the completion of the program. If you experience any problems with viewing any of the presentation, the archive program will be available on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor site. I want to thank Dr. Sauer again for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us. We look forward to seeing you on another Ask Expert webinar. Thanks very much.